You are now listening to the E-Watchman Podcast with your host, Robert King. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Watchman's Post podcast. This program was recorded for the first week of September in the year 2016. I'm sorry I missed the program for August. I don't know what happened there. Actually, I do. A few days ago, I I realized that The contact form that has been on the mailbag page that allows a person to send a message, question directly to me, had gone missing. Don't know where it went. Anyway, uh, someone had sent me an email a few days ago and said, aren't you going to do any more podcasts? And I said, well, I haven't been getting any questions. Now I know why. (laughs) So anyway, that person, uh, they said, well, I'll fix that. So they... A couple of days later, sent me a list of questions. Anyway, I'm putting this off on you. I missed the August program because you didn't send me any questions. So I feed off of your questions, and uh, you know, I guess my brain engaged. Same thing with the uh, daily commentary. I uh, feed off of the Watchtower's comments, and uh, so I need your input. And uh, you know, if you have questions for the next program, whether you contact page is still up or not, send a question to me. You can use the uh, the voicemail feature if you uh, check that out on the mailbag page. Anyway, so uh, this person who sent me a list of questions is a Bible student. He's, he uh, is just studying with Jehovah's Witnesses, so he has some basic questions here, that things that seem puzzling to people that are first introduced to some of the teachings of the Bible, of Jehovah's Witnesses. So his first question here is about the 144,000, and he says that Revelation 14 tells us that the 144,000 are virgins, and it also goes on to say that they did not defile themselves with women. And does this mean that an anointed person cannot have fathered children? I asked my study conductor about this, and he said that the women in the verse refers to the church and explained that uh, the 144,000 have not defiled themselves by being part of Christendom. That would suggest to me that those like me who were members of Christendom before studying uh, could never qualify to be a member of the anointed. Are you able to shed any light on the meaning of these verses? Well, obviously, we appreciate that uh, Revelation is written in symbols, and women are a symbol. Having relations with women are a symbol, and not having relations signifies something as well. It's not to be taken literally. Uh, That is evident from the fact that that 144,000 are men and women. So... 
it's saying that women who did not defile themselves with other women, they avoided lesbianism? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Je Jehovah's purpose, going back to the Garden of Eden, was that men and women have relations, that they marry and have children. That's what Jeho Jehovah commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful, become many, and fill the earth. So that was God's mandate in the beginning, and that's very much part of what it means to be human. Uh, but Jesus had a little different perspective on that, didn't he? He was never married, and uh, he recommended uh, that if a person could make room for it to become a eunuch for the kingdom. And, of course, the Apostle Paul followed that example, and uh, he recommended that course as well. That's not that, just, you know, not, not to say that getting married or having sexual relations with a, your mate is wrong, but with Jesus, he was holy and completely set apart for God's service, and uh, he didn't allow marriage to enter into it. You could speculate Jesus could have gotten married, and uh, perhaps he could have fathered perfect children, even from an imperfect mate. We don't know how that would work, but uh, you know you can speculate about that if you want. But these one hundred and forty-four thousand uh, are they? They have Christ's holiness imputed to them, so they become before God the same as Christ. They have Christ's pure standing before Jehovah because of their having been baptized into Christ and having put on Christ. So the Watchtower teaches that women in that context represents, you know, the, the harlot of Babylon as a woman, obviously, a symbolic harlot. And that, that's, that's uh, reasonable to... To, to see it that way, but I think it, it, it is more than that. It's not just persons who were not part of Babylon the Great. It's persons who have, well, since I, I mentioned that, that it's, it was Jehovah's will in the beginning for people to marry and have children and all of that. But the 144,000, even if they were married and even if they had a family, they give all of that up, don't they? They give up their humanness. Whatever they have in this life, on this earth, in the, in, in the way of family and family ties, their being called to Jehovah's kingdom supersedes all of that. And so they leave it behind. It's a sacrifice for them. And that's, that's another way you could look at it. Okay, a second question here. Who were those in prison to whom Jesus preached during the three days of his death? And then he cites the book, uh, What Does the Bible Really Teach? It tells us that when we die, we cease to exist, but are sleeping in God's memory, with the exception of the anointed, of course. And then 1 Peter 3, 18-20 seems to suggest that when Jesus was dead for the three-day period, that he was not, in the sense, uh, sleeping in God's memory, but he had an active role somewhere. If we're not conscious anywhere when dead, who were the ones in prison that Jesus preached to? 
And what was this prison? And why were the prisoners conscious in some other spiritual plane? And then he cites the scripture there in uh, Peter, which I'll read. Well, for one thing, um, there are spirits who are not connected with humanity. Is that something that, you know, the churches ha are responsible for embedding into people's minds that when you die, you have a spirit that goes off in some other world and exists in another plane? Of course, the Bible doesn't teach that, as, as you recognize in, in the book, What Does the Bible Really Teach? It doesn't teach that we have a soul or a spirit that survives the death of the body. God, Before God created humanity, he created spirits, and they exist in their own plane in the realm in heaven. In fact, when in the book of Job, when the God was humbling Job. And where were you when I created the earth, when all the sons of God shouted in applause? Who were those sons of God? They obviously were not human since they were watching from a vantage point somewhere else as God created the earth. So those spirits are angels. And now the verse that in 1 Peter 3, 18 and 20, it says, Christ died once for all time for sins, a righteous person for unrighteous ones, in order to lead you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And in this state, he went and preached to the spirits in prison who had formerly been disobedient when God was patiently waiting in Noah's day while the ark was being constructed, in which a few people, that is, eight souls, were carried safely through the water. So those spirit persons who were disobedient in the days of Noah were the angels that forsook their own proper dwelling place in heaven. Genesis Chapter 6 refers to those sons of God again, just as were mentioned in the book of Job. The sons of God began to notice the daughters of men, that they were good-looking, and they went taking wives for themselves. Yeah. That goes back to our original question about the 144,000. Here the angels wanted to have sexual relations with humans, something that was totally improper for them. Apparently, they were envious of what men had, and they wanted to get in on the action. And uh, they left their place in heaven, Jude, the book of uh, Jude says. And obviously, they, angels have the power to cloak themselves in flesh, to materialize, because many of the righteous angels actually did that even long after the flood. Uh, but these angels did it for a selfish purpose. And so the flood came, they dematerialized, went back into the spirit realm, uh, but God did not accept them back as his sons. He cast them out of his family and put restraints upon them, preventing them from materializing again cut them off completely from 
any enlightenment from him. That is the prison. It's not a literal place of confinement. Not yet. They're going into that place in the abyss as soon as the kingdom comes. But now, as far as Jesus, he, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. When was he made alive in the spirit? Was it instantaneously upon his death? No. He went to the grave for parts of three days. His body was put in a tomb. He didn't exist as a live, conscious entity. He was asleep in death. And then God brought him back to life, not as a fleshly man, but as a spirit. And that's something that you know, people in the churches simply cannot accept because they think in fleshly terms. Because Jesus appeared to his apostles, people think that, you know, Jesus was brought back in the flesh. Oh, he has glorified flesh or whatever. No, he was a spirit. But what does it mean that he went to preach to these spirits in prison? They're demons, right? Jesus had quite a few encounters with the demons during his ministry, and he would never let them speak because they, they, they possess people and they would, you know, like ventriloquists, they would use these people to speak with Jesus. You know, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? Yeah. Jesus would say, shut up. Be silent. Come out of him. So, and after Jesus is resurrected into the spirit realm, do you think he would have anything nice to say to these demons, these enemies of God and humanity? No. Preaching can have another connotation than the friendly sermon that might come to our mind when we hear that phrase. Again, if we go back to Eden and Satan brought up you know, this challenge that God is holding something back. God knows that in the day, you know, God is selfish. He doesn't want you to be enlightened. And then with, uh, in the case of the man Job, Satan said, you know, people that serve you because you give them everything, if they suffer, you'll see, they'll turn your, their back on you. And so that those issues really came into focus with Christ Jesus. From the very moment that he was baptized, the account says, and the Spirit led him away into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Think of that. Jesus taught us to pray in the so-called Lord's Prayer, Father, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the wicked one. And here, the very spirit of Jehovah led Jesus away to be tempted by the devil. Why? To settle this issue. And that was just the opening phase of it. If you recall, after the devil tempted Jesus three times, it says he departed until another convenient time. And of course, he really put the screws to him on the night of his arrest and torture and impalement. But when Jesus breathed his last, and his last words were, it has been accomplished. 
what did Jesus' death accomplish? Well, we know it accomplished, you know, he paid the ransom so humanity could be bought back from death that Satan brought upon Adam and Eve. But it accomplished so much more than that. It has vindicated Jehovah. Jesus showed that Satan is a liar. And you recall, again, in Eden, when Jehovah spoke of the seed of the woman being bruised in the heel, and the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent in the head, we, we, know, that the, we know what that symbolizes, that the Messiah would be wounded, but it wouldn't be permanent death. True, Jesus was put to death. He suffered a, a mortal wound, but Jehovah brought him back to life. So it was a temporary wound. He was in the grave for three days. That is what this symbolic wounding on the heel means. So when Jesus was brought back to life in the spirit realm, his very existence in heaven was a message to the demons that their leader, Satan, had failed. That this issue, for the most part, had been settled with finality. And that Jesus was now in a position to do what? To crush the head of the serpent, as Jehovah foretold he would. So that was his message to these spirits in prison. He's basically saying, look, you failed. I am going to destroy you. And he didn't even have to say that, you know, as a verbal message, as preaching to them. His existence in heaven signifying that Jehovah found favor in his sacrifice and Jesus is now immortal. He can't be touched and he's in a position to entirely destroy Satan and his seed. Good question, huh? Okay, as a question here on Michael the Archangel. He says, I understand from my study conductor that Jesus was in fact the Archangel Michael prior to his emptying himself and coming to the earth in the form of a baby. I'm assuming then that Michael no longer existed while Jesus was on the earth. However, now that Jesus is back in heaven, has he become Michael again or is Michael no more? Well, that, you know, that, it's a hard thing to get your mind around. For one thing, I think to simplify it, think of Jesus and Michael as simply two different names for the same person. Huh? It's not so unusual that a person would have two different names, especially in the case of Jesus or the Word, since he has existed in two different realms. Hmm? And you can say that he's, he's gone through quite a bit of transformation. As the original creation of Jehovah, the firstborn of all creation, uh, we know that his name was Michael because Jesus was his earthly name. And it, it would not have been his name in heaven before coming to the earth for the simple reason that the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. So mankind was not in need of salvation when Jehovah created them, and the word existed long before that, so surely his name would in heaven would not have been Jehovah's salvation. No. 
But as you say, he emptied himself. So Michael did not exist. He couldn't have existed because it goes back to the issue that Satan brought up, that skin in behalf of skin, a man will give everything he has to save his neck. He won't suffer for his God. That's what Satan was contending. But, okay, so Jesus is here on the earth. Just think of he, he knew, well, hey, this, I don't have that much to lose here. I'm still alive in heaven somewhere. I've got another me. You know? Now, when Jesus found himself in fashion as a man, he knew that he had to be faithful to God to receive his heavenly life back. He knew he, he, he had to die in order to get back to heaven. And he had to die faithful to God. And if he didn't, then he had no future. And that was reflected in the fact when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he, the weight of the world was on his back, literally. He knew it all came down to his this moment that he had to be faithful to death. He had to let Satan rip him apart hammer nails into his hands and feet, and he was sweating blood. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me, but not what I want, what you want. And it was Jehovah's will that he be subjected to this cruel and horrible death. And then, as we say, Jehovah brought him back to life, and rewarded him and given him everything, given him immortality, something that no creature has possessed. Only Jehovah had immortality until Jesus was resurrected because Jehovah appreciated so much what Jesus did. So Jesus is back in heaven. He has re resumed the name Michael, but he is now a different person than he was before he came to the earth. He is now immortal. He's been granted the highest position in heaven, a name above every other name. And people might say, well, that name isn't Michael. No, it's Jesus because of what he did upon the earth. The name Jesus is still attached to the person in heaven to... to, to because of his association with what he did as a man, as Jesus the man. So, yeah, it's what regardless of the name, even if he had the same name in heaven, if he was, if Jesus would have had the name Michael on the earth, he went through a number of uh, iterations, you might say, and uh, he's lived in different places. He's had an experience far, far grander and wider than anything that you or I or any human could ever experience. And I should, it shouldn't be a surprise that he has more than one name to as a reflection of his existence. Here's an unusual question about the so-called gap theory. He says, I'm reading an uh, interesting um, book, but in my opinion, is ludicrous on the subject of the gap theory. It's also known as the ruin, restoration, creationism theory. The author and, and those that follow this teaching have, it appears to me, read way too much into the apparent gap between Genesis 
1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and using a few scattered verses of the Bible, for example, 2 Peter 3, 5-7, for this, they're, they say they're willingly ignorant that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing compactly out of water and in the water, whereby the world then was being overflowed with the water, perished with the heavens and the earth that are now. Did I read that right? I said, well, King James, no wonder it sounds like you're reading gibberish. Anyway, they state that 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 was not the flood of Noah's day, but some other catastrophe, and they create a whole doctrine on this subject. They also state that the first earth in heaven is when Satan and his friends were cast out of heaven. What are your thoughts on this? Well, my, my experience is that people will generally believe anything but the truth. So that's not surprising when people come up with cockamamie theories and people believe it, you know. People believe all kinds of nonsense. But it's very precious few that actually believe the truth. Ironically, though, there is a gap. There is a huge gap from Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that was the big creation, the heavens not the heavens where Jehovah lives, but the starry heavens, the physical universe, all the star constellations and our little solar system in the Milky Way and all the planets, including our little Earth. In the beginning, God created all of that. And then verse 2, now the Earth was formless and desolate and there was darkness upon the surface of the watery deep. And God's active force was moving about over the surface of the waters. A huge gap there. The universe has existed for billions of years. And the earth was just this ball covered in gas and water. And there was no life, nothing happening. And that the gap is when Jehovah's Spirit started to work with this desolate planet. And there were billions of years from the time God created the heavens and the earth until the time he started his creation work. And that first day, he split the waters, right? He started thinning out. The, the earth was a Jovian planet, gas and water, right? Just like uh, Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, but God began creating the land and so forth, and eventually the animals. But there was no... <laughs> Satan is not thrown out of heaven until the kingdom comes. I mean, that is so elementary. How could anyone believe otherwise? The 12th chapter of Revelation, a battle erupts in heaven. Michael, there's Michael again. Michael and his angels battle with the dragon and his angels, and down he's hurled. Also, when Jesus was on the earth, he referred to Satan. He said he was uh, a liar when he began. So, when did he begin? When did he begin to oppose God? It was in the Garden of Eden when he told the first lie, when he said that Adam and Eve would not die if they disobeyed God. And uh, the Hebrew scriptures don't mention Satan by name, but... and. Uh, Ezekiel, it says, you were a cherub in the garden of God, 
and you were perfect until the day that uh, sin was found in you. So he became an opposer of God and a sinful angel in the Garden of Eden and not before. Jehovah would not have assigned a you know, a, a rebellious, treacherous angel to watch over his earthly creation. And Jesus said, what father would give his son a serpent if he asked for a piece of bread? God wouldn't do that. But this angel who was given this assignment to watch over Adam and Eve and guide them, protect them, he coveted their worship. And that, that was the moment he schemed and seized it and that's when he became Satan the devil, right there in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Okay, now question number five on dinosaurs. In your opinion, according to Bible chronology, when did the dinosaurs roam the earth? My Bible study conductor tells me it is possible that Adam and Eve were able to look out of the Garden of Eden and, and see dinosaurs roaming about. However, carbon dating tells us that dinosaur fossils are millions of years old. Uh, I understand that Adam and Eve were created only six or 7,000 years ago. Well, um, it is possible that some sort of dinosaurs existed. I mean, there are what you might call dinosaurs still living today, small little, you know, Gila monsters, you can say a crocodile is a type of dinosaur, but uh, the Bible refers to, I think it's the fourth day of creation, or fifth day where God created the great sea monsters, uh, so that could refer to the dinosaurs. Obviously, God had a purpose for them. They were humongous beasts that constantly ate. I mean, they they had some sort of purpose in creating a an environment of, um, well, th imagine their manure. I mean, <laughs> they were composting machines, and then their carcasses would die, and uh, that's presumably where some of the oil uh, oil deposits are created from organic matter that rots, and uh, its basic constituents is this thick, gooey oil. But as far as uh, millions of years old, no, uh, carbon dating is only reliable back to about 50,000 years. And that's because carbon dating um, measures C14. It's a low-level uh, radioactive isotope that all living things breathe in because it's in the atmosphere created by interaction with uh, ultraviolet from the sun. But C14... It, all radioactive substances have what they call a half-life. So say you have an ounce of, uh, of a radioactive substance, let's so say uranium. I don't know what the half-life is on uranium, but an ounce in its half-life, let's say it would be a, a million years. In a million years, you would have a half an ounce, and in another million years, a quarter of an ounce. But C14 has a very active uh, decay rate of about 5,500 years. So the assumption is, you know, all living things, you know, absorb this C14 and after 5,500 years, they have half that amount and another 55 and so on and so on. Well, 
because no creature can amass a, a large amount of C14 just through the process of breathing and eating, scientists know that uh, after 50,000 years, there is no measurable C14 in anything that lived. So forget the million years thing. That That's not possible. And, and I would add also that, you know, scientists... The assumption is that the rate of C14 formation has always been constant. That's the uniformitarian theory. The way things are now is the way they've always been. But that scripture we read in Second Peter, that there was a world standing compactly out of water and in the midst of water by the word of God, referring back to Genesis and that first creative day, God suspended a heavenly ocean over the earth. And in creation. In fact, the word deluge, I've mentioned this a number of times, that the Hebrew word for deluge literally means heavenly ocean. And at that flood, that suspended heavenly ocean wasn't water vapor as we're thinking of clouds. It was literal water, which cannot be duplicated through natural process of evaporation, condensation, and so forth. It was a creative act of God can't be duplicated. So anyway, that's what came down at the flood, completely rearranged the face of the earth, buried fossils under tons and tons and tons of silt and sediment, and, you know, archaeologists digging in the dirt would think, wow, this is really old. Look how far down it is. (laughs) But also, that heavenly ocean would have, we would have to think, uh, limited the amount of ultraviolet radiation interacting with the atmosphere to form C14. So plants and animals that lived before the flood would have a lower level of C14 absorbed over their lifetime. And so if a scientist found a fossil that predated the flood and they measured its C14, it would have very little because it absorbed little to begin with. But because they believe that the rate of absorption was constant, they think, wow, this thing is really old. That doesn't have our <laughs> So kind of uh, interesting. Okay. Um, one more question. This is kind of a personal question. I note that you often quote from the 2013 edition of the New World Translation Bible, a translation that seems to get a lot of bad reviews by non-witnesses. Do you, do you use this translation yourself, or do you quote from it merely to show that the witnesses are, are using as their translation? Do you think the New World Translation is an accurate translation? Well, yes, I, I've always used the New World Translation, uh, the new edition. I, I haven't read all of it yet, but the parts that I'm reading, I'm finding very refreshing. I think some of the older... The wording in the older translation was kind of stiff and um, overly formal. I, I very much appreciate the New World Translation, the 2013. I think part of it, I mean, these brothers have done a tremendous job because when you think about this publication, this Bible is translated in over 100 languages. So I think that factors into some of their consideration of uh, wording is how, how will this uh, wording be better, you know, accessible in other languages? And uh, I don't think any Bible can approach 
the circulation of the New World Translation in terms of um, number of languages. And of course, the Watchtower and Bible literature is over 700 languages, which is just incredible. But, you know, if you want to, you know, compare translations, the Watchtower's uh, website there has, you know, on the right column, you can click the little icon and uh, the Watchtower has printing rights to the Byington and uh, the, um, well, the King James, for that matter, and the American Standard. And, of course, the Kingdom Interlinear, interlinear excuse me, and you can cross-compare. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to say the same thing. So you know, I remember years ago in service, <laughs> this poor guy, he got, we were, you know, I was engaging him in my ministry, and he said, you know, my pastor told me that the King James Bible is exactly word for word what the old Bible said. Now, how, do, how do you reason with someone like that? How do you get through to that guy? <laughs> uh, well, people like to have their ears tickled, don't they? I think, you know, obviously that the New World Translation gets bad reviews from non-witnesses. The, the previous edition did as well. Because, you know, they have their pet verses. They, you know, they have to have their translation that's tilted toward the Jesus is God, you know. How dare the watchtower, you know, stick an A in John 1-1. Jesus is a God, you know. They rip their garments and pull out their hair. Whoa, it's blasphemy. <laughs> but, of course, it is true. <laughs> it's perfectly proper translating. And that other verse in John 8 58, Jesus said, I am, and that's, there you go. He is the I am, and they build a whole doctrine around that. The Watchtower has translated it, well, before Abraham existed, I was. Well, I have been, whatever. And so that's the basis of their bad reviews. But personally, I, I find it very troubling that most translations have taken the name God, name of God out of their translation. They think it's unimportant. Now, you can take issue with the use of the name Jehovah. Fine. Well, what is it then? Well, Yahweh. Okay, use that then. Well, the, the Catholic um, New Jerusalem Bible, which I have and have read over the years, they use Yahweh pretty consistently. Fine. But do Catholics refer to God as Yahweh? No. No, they don't. Not really. A few hardcore individuals try to, you know, give themselves an air of uh, authenticity by referring to God as Yahweh and Jesus to Yeshua and, you know. Well, why don't you just... You know, speak Hebrew if you're going to try to speak Hebrew. Why pick out a couple of names that... Anyway. Now, I I recommend the New World Translation. I, I, I haven't found anything grossly in error with it at all. And I appreciate its consistency and, and using the same word typically for, for the same Hebrew and Greek expressions. I, I was... Glad, I guess, to see them get rid of the uh, Hebrew and Greek words like Sheol and uh, Hades. Now they just 
because they were trying so hard over the years to, you know, get away from the hell business, but now it's just grave because we know what those words mean by now, right? Okay, he has one last question here. Will I not be able to die in the new system? Revelation 21.4 says that death will be no more. Does this mean that in the new system I won't be able to die even if I throw myself off a cliff or into the sea? <laughs> no, that, that's not what it means. It, it means that uh, you will have the good sense to not throw yourself off a cliff or try to kill yourself. <laughs> no. The death that is no more is the death that Adam and Eve passed on to us. You and I have no choice we're going to die unless Jehovah intervenes and does away with death, what we call Adamic death. Now, if a person who has been brought to perfection deliberately sins against God, they will be put to death, and that death will be permanent. Because a perfect person does not sin in error. We're prone that way from birth, right? We were born in sin. Our parents were sinners. We, it's, you know, ingrained in our DNA. We're going to do the wrong thing. We have death in us. We are a dying species, <laughs> But God is going to lift that curse off of us and uh, teach us how to live as perfect men and women. And uh, anyone who sins after that, well, they might as well throw themselves off a cliff, right? <laughs> Same result. No, but a perfect person, we should use our imagination there a little bit. A perfect person is not going to be mistake-prone, right? And maybe that's why Jehovah placed the covering cherub in Eden to watch over them, make sure that, you know, a tree branch doesn't snap off and fall on him while he's laying under the tree, you know, I mean, protect us from these little incidents that could happen that we cannot foresee, but an angel could foresee. So that's one of the tasks of the angels to watch over us, or it will be. Okay. Now, this question is from uh, a different person, but it's along the same lines. What is the difference between immorality? Excuse me, immorality. <laughs> oh, boy. What is the difference between immortality? Let's get that right. There's a big difference. Immortality and eternal life. Does God still have control over those who are granted immortality? Or can he take it away from them? Were humans granted immortality at the beginning of human creation? Okay, that first, that last question first. No, humans were never granted immortality, nor can they be. The very nature of uh, humanity is that we are um, dependent. We have to breathe. We have to eat. Immortality means it's impossible to die. You're indestructible, you know, like the cartoon character Superman. Only with an immortal person, a real immortal person, they aren't even vulnerable to kryptonite. Nothing can affect them. They have life in themselves. They do not need Jehovah to keep giving them life. They're not dependent upon uh, an environmental system for air and water and food and all of that, as humans will always be. But humans can live forever. Jehovah obviously designed our bodies to 
replenish themselves, to heal themselves, and his intention was for that to go on indefinitely as long as we didn't sin. <laughs> and it's interesting in Revelation, you know, when the, the, the kingdom comes and it's as if, if uh, this stream of water is flowing out from the city of God and on each side of the stream of water are 12 trees and their leaves, it says, are for the curing of the nations. So God is going to heal us and give us back life, but we'll always be dependent upon him to keep sustaining us. And that, I mean, there's a big picture there, but scientists say, well, the sun is going to burn out here pretty soon, five billion years or whatever. It's going to go supernova and this, it'll all be over. So we need God to sort of, you know, fix that sort of thing that is far beyond our ability. And of course, we can depend on God to do that, whatever it takes. But immortality, Jehovah is the only one that's had immortality, has always existed. Oh, hurts my head to think about that one. Uh, but he, as I mentioned, he granted that to Christ, and those who are belong to Christ will be given immortality as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, can God take it away from them? Now, that's an interesting conundrum. God can do anything, right? Well, there's another factor. God does not grant immortality alone. There's, there's something else. And I'd like to read you a passage that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But I tell you this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit God's kingdom, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Look, I tell you a sacred secret. We will not all fall asleep in death, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, during the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised up incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this which is corruptible must put on incorruption, and this which is mortal must put on immortality. But when this is which, which is corruptible puts on incorruption, and this which is mortal puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death is swallowed up forever. So, did you see the, the connection there? Immortality with incorruption. A person that is incorruptible cannot sin. They will never, ever allow themselves to be disloyal to God. Obviously, the angels are not incorruptible. They corrupted themselves with women, right, when they came down and had sex. And obviously, they're not immortal either. They're going to be crushed out of existence. But those whom Jehovah gives immortality will be incorruptible. It's, it's an amazing thing. And that, again, goes back to what Satan said in the Garden of Eden. God knows in the very day of your eating from the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and bad. God doesn't want that. 
He can't share that with anyone. He can't trust you for one thing. He knows if you're like him, you might not like him anymore. You might, huh? by Jehovah, giving these 144,000 life in themselves and granting them incorruptibility. Uh, the Hebrew prophets hint at that when they, they spoke of God taking out their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. In other words, changing their nature from corruption to incorruption, giving them an attachment to Jehovah, knowing him completely. As Jesus said, no one knows the Father except the Son, and to whomever the Son is willing to reveal him. So the 144,000 will know Jehovah better than the angels ever did. They will be so connected to him they will never, ever disobey him, doubt him, do anything to rival his glory. God doesn't have to worry about him. He gives them life in themselves. They will always worship him. And uh, Satan will just suffer this ignominious death forever. That's, that's what it means when he's burned in the fire forever. His lies will just never be forgotten. This creature, this thought he is so mighty and wise and look at this foolish nonsense. Jehovah trumped him. Well, I believe that's going to do it for me. I've rambled on here for long enough. Thank you for listening. And uh, keep the cards and letters coming, kids, uh, with the questions. <laughs> And until then, may Jehovah bless your search for the truth.